We've been studying through the book of Jude, and the message of the book of Jude is just that, message about contending for the truth. In John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate, who was the governor of Judea at the time, during the ministry of Jesus Christ, gave an answer to a statement that Jesus made in the previous verse, in verse 37, in which Jesus said this, For this I, was, I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Of course, Pilate gave this answer. What is truth? What is truth? Pilate was, of course, cynical. Cynical concerning the reality of anything being absolute truth. No different, really, than many today who disparage the reality in our own day and age of there being any actual truth. The world in which we live is displaying the very same cynicism and implying the very same question. What is truth? It ought not be a surprise to us because like Pilate, who was before all of us in the day of history and everyone who has followed in the path of the cynicism of Pilate, rejecting Jesus Christ is equal to rejecting the truth. And while the world so easily rejects Jesus Christ because they refuse to be accountable to anyone except their own self, it ought to really shock us to the core of our being as Christians when we find the evangelical church embracing the very same ideology. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. In fact, the English word truth is used nearly 200 times in any reliable translation of the original text from which we got the scriptures. And most of the time it's referring to God's written word and at other times to the personification of the Word, who is Jesus Christ Himself. In other words, what the Bible says is truth. And it is truth simply and factually because it is the Word of God. And it declares and reveals to us the living truth, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and Jesus Christ died for the church. Which means that He gave His very life so that all whom He has called out of the world, that's what the word ekklesia means when you hear it and hear someone quote the Greek language for that word for church in the New Testament. It is the ekklesia, it is the called out ones. Jesus Christ gave His life for His called out people. Therefore, is it any wonder that God the Spirit would proclaim through the Apostle Paul to Timothy that the church is the pillar and support of the truth? This is what the church does. 
This is who we are. This is the very reason why we exist on this earth. In fact, we cannot be saved. We cannot be a holy people without the truth. Let's listen for a moment what Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Paul said this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul writing to the church, speaking to the called out people of God, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. We know as Christians, particularly Christians here in this church, we know what sanctification means, or at least we should know what it means. It comes from the word hagios. It means holy. It means set apart. And so holiness is not simply being like Christ positionally before God. We are certainly that as we are saved by Christ. We are holy before God. God sees us in the place of His Son. We are holy. So, so we are holy because of Christ, but, but holiness or sanctification is also how we are to live. We are to be holy because He is holy. And so the Christian, we are to be holy in practice. We are to be sanctified in practice. We are to be holy in everyday life. We are to be set apart from all that is in the world. All that is sinful, all that is sinful in thought and word and deed, we are to live holy, separate from that. The Bible says that this is God's will for us. Each and every one who is called by the name of Jesus Christ. It is God's will that we be holy. It is God's will that we be sanctified. How does that happen? How does that happen? If we were to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 17, we studied it some not time ago. We understand what's taking place in John chapter 17, the very high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ before his death. And Jesus prays in John 17 for those whom he has saved and those whom he will save. He prays there for us. He prays for the church, the called out ones, for those whom He saves. For there is no one else He saves. He asks God the Father to accomplish His will for us. He says in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them. Father, do what Your will is. Your will is to sanctify them. So, Father, sanctify them. Fulfill Your will. Sanctify them. How? How does He sanctify? Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And then He says this statement. Your Word is truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 19 of that same chapter, Jesus says to God the Father, For their sakes I sanctify myself. 
It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say he sanctifies himself in the truth. Why? It just simply says he sanctifies himself. Why? Because he is the truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So here is Jesus telling us that there is no sanctification apart from the truth. He prays for our sanctification, and it is the will of God the Father for us to be sanctified. And we know that sanctification only happens through a relationship with Him who is truth personified. And the Word of God is the truth, both living and written. And the church is the pillar and support of the very truth that we're talking about. Therefore, beloved, there is no sanctification apart from the truth. And the primary objective means designed by God to sanctify us is through the very ministry of the church. This is why Jesus Christ said the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Because the church is the pillar in support of the truth. And it is the truth that sanctifies. The very bride for whom Christ died, the very bride for whom he sanctifies himself for. Therefore, beloved, it is imperative. It is imperative here this morning that we understand that we follow the exhortation that we find in the study of the book of Jude to a T. It is imperative that we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is imperative for you and I as Christians that we stand for the truth. That we stand for what God has given to us, this this sacred content that we have sitting there on our laps. We, We contend for the truth and we don't allow it to be attacked. We don't allow it to be disparaged. We don't allow it to be diluted and undermined in any kind of way. I trust we remember what we've been learning in our study. And that the church is constantly in danger. The church is constantly being ravaged by the infiltration of some who promote anything but truth. The church is in danger of the apostate. Those who have heard the truth, those who even have embraced the truth for a time, those who have looked spiritually good for a while, but in reality they are ungodly people. That's what makes them so dangerous for the church. This is why Jude speaks so strong and so sternly against them. As we learned last Lord's Day, God is not surprised at any of this. In fact, He sovereignly even allows it in order to test those who are genuine. Deuteronomy 13 is a shocking warning to us. We looked at it last time. I'll just read it again to remind us. 
Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 1, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Why? Because the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall not walk after, or you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. That's a very shocking revelation to us. We need to heed the word because of the danger and the subtlety at which it can come. We need to stand against it. The tragedy is that some within evangelicalism come along and say that we ought not be too harsh, that we ought not speak with such definitiveness in our indictment of those kinds of people. Why? Because after all, listen, don't we want to leave the door open for the possibility of the gospel? I mean, if we speak that way and we, if we, we have that such a sharp arrow from the Word of God in those situations. Isn't it going to close the door and they'll no longer want to hear the gospel? Well, listen, the writer of Hebrews clearly tells us that it's impossible for someone in that state to come to the knowledge of repentance. Why? Simply because of this, they've trampled underfoot the grace of Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 tells us that. In other words, they have turned their backs on the only saving reality, Jesus Christ. They have turned their backs on the truth. They have rejected truth. You see, embracing truth is the outworking of true repentance. Embracing truth is the outworking of a heart changed by God, and yet they have rejected truth. There will be no repentance. Furthermore, here is how God sees them. The Old Testament is an example to us. Here is how God sees them in the Old Testament back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, because he says to Israel in verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, the one whom you shall not follow because they've said to follow other gods, that dreamer, that prophet, they shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Wow. God is so harsh, so serious, so severe about his word being pure. So serious, in fact, that he told Israel to remove those people, not just from their midst, but from the face of the earth. Are you saying, pastor, that we should kill them? No, no, I'm not saying that. Thou shalt not murder. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We certainly don't allow them to be part of the church. We put them out of the church. So their judgment is coming. And in Jude, we saw that in verses 5 through 7. And now we are looking at their identity. The identity of the false. The identity of the apostate. 
the willful rejecter of the truth. You remember that I listed their identity under four categories. Four categories. I'll just list them again for us. The apostate, the, or the apostate, is arrogant in their imagination, verses eight and nine. They are arrogant in their ignorance. They are arrogant in their determination. And they're arrogant in their attendance. Let me just read these verses again for us, just to get our minds set back on this, since we've had a lot come to us already, even this morning. Beginning in verse 8 of Jude, yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, ye revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for, caring for themselves. They are clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. They are wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Truly a shocking passage. Almost like reading Deuteronomy 13. And one of the realities that makes it so shocking is that because of the arrogance, because of the the sinful, prideful exuberance of arrogance, the apostate is undeterred by anything of the coming judgment that they know of. All of the past history of God judging those who willfully reject His loving provision, it goes unnoticed by the arrogant. And it shows itself first through this first reality of their imaginations or pretended revelations. You could even call it that. Pretended revelations. They, in the same manner, by dreaming, he says. We talked about this last time, so we understand what Jude is meaning here. Because he's speaking about pretending of Receiving personal words from God. In other words, their characteristic in their life, the characteristic that they pay far greater attention to than they ought to pay attention in any kind of way is their own pretended visions of God. They go to the visions that they pretend to have about God rather than the actual word of God once for all delivered to the saints. They're daring in their arrogance. And notice how Jude describes it because he he reveals how their arrogance is promoted. 
They go about promoting their godless teachings by means of their pretended revelations from God. And Jude gives us a description of that. He uses the same description from Deuteronomy. Notice, he says they they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angelic majesties. This is the idea even of Deuteronomy 13. Let's let's follow after other gods. Let's, Let's go do things that our God has not told us to do. And you notice here that Jude gives them to us in this triplet. The first category of arrogance is further described here then by their three outcomes. The three outcomes under this idea of their arrogance in their dreaming. Notice first, he says they defile the flesh. This is outcome number one. Because of their dreaming, they defile the flesh. What is Jude saying? Well, the word flesh is just used here to describe our humanness, our humanness. We are people of flesh. Uh, We are mortal. And that, that describes both our physical reality, but it also describes our immaterial being. That which we cannot see, what makes us animated, if you will. In other words, we are spiritually the word flesh here is describing the spiritually without Christ. We are fleshly people. What are you saying? And so the term used here for defile along with flesh means to pollute. In ancient times, it meant to dye something another color, to, to use a dye made from a plant in order to change dramatically the color of some kind of fabric that they had made. So Jude is simply saying here that there is a categorical change in this person because of their own dreaming. Jude is telling us the fact that the apostate, through his own imaginative thinking, through his own perceived revelation from God, they go about in an immoral life which is contrary to the truth. So think about that, the apostate in the church. The apostate in the church goes about influencing both their own mind and therefore their own bodies, as well as any of those who they have influence in with darker and darker shades of immoral living. They just continue to dye themselves darker and darker and darker. Remember what Jude said back in verse 4? They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. In other words, through the abuse of the grace of God, by means of false revelations they say they got from God, they go about living and pursuing an immoral life. It's just what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy 13. Let's go, as God was giving a message to Israel, God was saying, they say, let's go serve other gods. Immorality. Licentiousness. I can do what I want because God is a gracious God. No big deal. He'll forgive. In fact, he doesn't really have an issue with it anyway. Like the Mormon church. Men are convinced that it's okay to marry multiple women. That's immorality. 
It's ungodly. Why do they do that? Because Mormonism is a false religion fabricated on a false vision from God, supposedly passed down to Joseph Smith. Part of the outcome of that false religion is the false doctrine of polygamy. That it's okay, go ahead, marry as many women as you want. That's all just sexual immorality. They are defiling the flesh. They're just like here. The defiling of flesh is something common with false religions. This is a common denominator. All false religions are born from the same kind of false vision, and all of them have rampant sexual immorality. All of them. And so, as you see, like many false teachers today, their lives are filled with the grossest of immoralities. And many of them don't even try to hide it. Many of them just come out, it's no problem, and all of them claim to be following God. And Jude says they're doing this by way of their own imaginations. They are defiling the flesh. And then he gives a second outcome. Verse 8, you notice the second outcome is they reject authority. They reject authority. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3? To Timothy, but realize this, in the last days difficult times will come, Timothy. Remember this, this is going to be how ministry is. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. He lists 18 different things. Lovers of self, lovers of money, they're boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. They're ungrateful, they're unholy, they're unloving, they're irreconcilable, they're malicious gossips, without self-control, they're brutal, they're haters of good, they're treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and yet, amazingly, they're holding to a form of godliness. Although they've denied its power. So here's how I want you to respond to that kind of person, Timothy. Avoid such men as these. Avoid them. Stay away from them. Verse 5 in that passage is key. They hold to a form of godliness. But they have no power for godliness. Why? Because they are self-willed. They are proud. They are arrogant. They are puffed up in their own minds. They can no longer be instructed. Why? Because they reject authority. They reject any authority over them. In fact, Titus 1.10 calls them rebellious men. Interesting passage because the term rebellious there used by Titus means not subject to rule. They're not subject to rule. In other words, they won't submit to Christ's rule in their lives and they won't submit to anyone whom Christ has brought in their lives as someone they ought to submit to. They submit to no one. Therefore, their rebellion is expressed by disregarding the Word of God at any place that it calls for their submission to anything except for themselves. They're the only authority they recognize. 
And so because they follow their own dreams, because they follow their own thinking, they live immorally, they reject any authority over them. And then the third outcome is that they actually blaspheme angels. They actually blaspheme angels. Jude says, in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesty. In other words, they are so arrogant, so arrogant in their own dreams that they believe they have the ability and the authority over the angelic realm. They speak as if they can bind and control that which is even evil. You can turn on any number of TV charlatans today and hear them speak in arrogant statements about binding Satan, rebuking the devil or the demons. They're just fools. They're doing that which they do not even understand. That which even the most prominent of angels would never do. Notice verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, is there by staunch contrast. Here are these guys. Here are these people who are so arrogant in themselves that they will say that they hear from God and that God is leading them in their directions, but they live immorally. They reject any authority over them and they revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, that's for contrast. That's to shock us. That's so that we understand exactly what's happening here. This is a major contrast with the arrogance of the apostate. They have no restraint. In comparison to Michael, the archangel, who has righteous and holy constraint. This is Jude's point. Jude's point is that not even Michael, the archangel, the lead angel, that's what it means, the lead angel, the chief, if you will, the chief angel of God's angels, not even the chief angel, not even the one who's been dispatched by God himself at times would presume to do what arrogant apostates do. Apparently, You notice in verse 9, but Michael, even the archangel, or the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. Apparently, in the spiritual realm, in the realm in which we do not currently live, there was some kind of dispute over the body of Moses. We are not told about this in the Bible. We are not told why this happened. We are not even given any kind of understanding as to the occurrence of this incident except here. And brothers and sisters, we ought to understand this. If it was necessary for us to know the details of this event for our good and the glory of God, then God would have shared it with us. But he didn't. All we know about Moses' death is what it says in Deuteronomy 34. Verses four or verses five and six. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that is God, buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. 
Now, we can speculate as to why God did it that way. In all of our best spiritual speculations, we could simply just say, probably because we would all go there and want to worship Moses. That's all we know. And Jude tells us that apparently there was some dispute over the body of Moses by Michael the archangel and the devil. And Michael, being the chief angel, didn't even dare to pronounce any kind of railing judgment against the devil, but instead simply said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael was extremely careful. Michael was extremely careful as the chief archangel not to go outside his proper place of delegated authority. Michael would not do and did not do what Lucifer before him did and outstepped his boundary and said, I will be like God. That's what arrogant apostates do. They just claim to be as if they are God. Michael fears God. Apostates do not. Second Peter 2.10 said to us, they are daring and self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. They are self-willed. People who are not apostates tremble. The apostates should tremble. They should tremble, but because of their arrogance, they do not tremble. Because they do not come under any authority, they do not tremble. And so they have no problem in their daring, self-willed, Life. The people who are following the truth, people who know the truth and who love the truth because you have a relationship with the truth, tremble at God's word. You tremble at the truth. Isaiah 66 2, God says this To this one I will look. To him who is humble, contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. What have we learned? What have we learned? Staccato fashion this morning. What have we learned? Or what we saw in that short, brief video and just this look at verses 8 and 9, what have we learned? We've learned this. Truth matters. Truth matters. Truth is all we have that is solid ground, beloved. But if we follow after the lies, then we will be like those who manufacture the lies. We too will be arrogant in our own imaginations. We too will be those who will say we know the truth, but we do not know the truth. 
we will be those who live immoral lives, both subtly and outwardly. We will be like those dreamers who defile the flesh. We will be like them if we follow the lies. We will too also be rejecting authority. We will not be humble and contrite. We will reject any authority. We will refuse to tremble at God's word. Jude is right. Why is Jude right? Because God's right. Because God's right. We must contend for the faith once for all delivered to us. If we do not, we're already on the slippery slope. If we do not, we are already headed down the path of apostasy. Some time ago when I was in seminary, going through preaching labs, they always said, listen, when you're done, be done. Don't say anymore. I'm not going to say anymore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. Thank you for your people, their desire to hear the truth, to know the truth, to love the truth. Thank you for calling us out from this world of falseness. Thank you for challenging us this morning, helping us understand that when we stand for the truth, there will be persecution. It will come. We are seeing it here in our world in this day. It has come. And oh, shame on us if we run. Lord, give us the strength to endure. Give us the internal spirit-driven fortitude to stand fast. Open up the word of God and proclaim the truth even when the arrows are flying. Know that our God is greater than anything and that to be one day, one day in your courts is better than a thousand years here. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, protect us, care for us. Fulfill your will in us. Sanctify us by your truth. That we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the truth, in whom we have our life, our salvation, our all. Bless us, Lord, according to your will, because of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.